Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 537th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who clears up illusions about the substances we use to grow our food. We're talking with Robert Pavlis about garden soil myths. Robert is a well-known speaker and educator with over 40 years of gardening experience. He is the author of three books, Building Natural Ponds, Garden Myths, and Soil Science for Gardeners, and publishes the popular gardening blogs GardenMyths.com and GardenFundamentals.com. As the owner and head gardener at Aspen Grove Gardens, a six-acre botanical garden, he grows 3,000 varieties of plants. How cool is that? Welcome to the show today, Robert. Are you ready to rock? I can't wait. Excellent. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? Sure. My interest has always been in sciences and particularly chemistry and a bit of biology. But then I needed a career, so I ended up doing some teaching and then I started my own software company. Really? And did that. So plants have always been my hobby and my interest. But our software company actually made laboratory software, I, so I stayed in the, the lab business and understood what people do for testing, and I kind of apply my chemistry background to my interest in plants. And about 10 years ago, we decided to move out to the outskirts of town, and we bought six acres of property, and I had a dream of converting that into a small private botanical garden. Nice. So my interest these days is in writing and educating people about gardening and trying to find out uh, the truth about a lot of the things that I've read over the years. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So just an interesting side note, I was in gardening. In fact, my first business here in Phoenix was in the 1970s. I used to clean service and build fish ponds. And in 1984, I got out of it for whatever silly reason, and I got into technology, and I started a software company in 1987 that I ran for 20 years. Is that right? Isn't that funny? Yeah, well, we were pioneers back when their computers were just starting out. Right, exactly. Well, you know, I think back over the past 15, 20 years, in fact, I'm reading a book right now from 1999, and it's a work of fiction, but 
you know, the, the notion of cell phones doesn't even exist in the writing. That's how much it's changed mm-hmm. just in 20 years. Well, when I started a business, uh, there were no cell phones, there was no email, there was no right. internet. All those things were, were someone's dream, maybe, but they certainly didn't exist. <laughs> exactly. I think, I think maybe we're dating ourselves a little bit. So tell me about your six-acre botanical garden. When I saw that on your bio, I was like, whoa, how cool is that? bought a property mostly for the land. It did have a house on it, but it's mostly for the land. It's a hilly property. Part of it is uh, natural woods, so I have sort of a sugar beach forest. Part of it was open meadows, and around the house was mostly your typical flat lawn. Uh, the people who lived here before us never did any gardening. And so we came in and pretty much ripped up all the lawn. <laughs> Good. Uh, except they're over the septic bed, uh-huh. and started putting in various kinds of beds. So I have all everything you can think of, uh, sunny areas, shady areas, bog gardens, uh, rock gardens, raised rock gardens, ponds, waterfalls, Japanese tea house. If you name it, you name it I probably have it. My real interest is, is plants. I'm a plantaholic. So I have to have one of everything. Oh, nice. And that's when I started gathering plants. And I grow a lot of native things. I grow a tremendous amount of things from seed. So I have a lot of unusual plants. And my interest is always trying to grow something new that I haven't grown before. Wow. Awesome. So we're here to talk about garden soil myths. And for the people that are on my podcast that talk about garden soil, I always like to ask the following question, and this may be a surprise to you, but I'll bet you know the answer. And that is, what makes good, healthy garden soil? Well, microbes is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the microbes. If you have microbes and they're happy and prospering, you will at least get healthy soil eventually. You might not have it today, but it will come. And healthy soil is is really an environment where the microbes grow really well. And that's the secret to the whole thing. So we have to understand the microbes, and then we understand what works and doesn't work in the garden, and what will improve soil and what won't. Mm -hmm. Well, here in the desert, we have less than 1% organic matter in our soil. And Uh, For years, I've said there's five components to healthy soil. Actually, for years, I said there were four components to healthy soil, and that was airspace, water, dirt, which is the broken down rock, and organic matter. And and about 10 or 12 years ago, it was like, hold on, the everything that's alive in the soil is super important as well. Yeah, the microbes. And the other thing that people ignore is, is really the plants themselves. Those plant roots add a lot of that carbon to the soil. Uh, they, they, pr- they add that organic matter, mm-hmm. not just in the falling leaves, but the actual roots that are growing in there. So having something growing in soil all the time is a way towards healthy soil. Oh, nice. So, and this is what I I tell people all the time. I like weeds growing in my garden because often what I'll do is I'll take and cut them off right below the soil level and I leave the roots in place and they rot right in place and put compost in the soil for me. That's right. It's instant organic matter. It's food for the microbes. So as soon as you cut that top off and the roots die back. The microbes come in and eat all that up and compost it in the soil. And that adds nutrients for other plants to grow. Nice. And that's really what we're here to talk about is fertilizer, balanced fertilizer. Let's talk about what is a balanced fertilizer and how do they work? Well, I'm not sure where the concept came from, so I'm guessing a little bit. But I, I think at one point fertilizer companies decided, well, we can produce this stuff and put it in bags and sell it to people. 
but how much of nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium should we mix together? And nobody really knew, so they said, well, let's put equal amounts. So we'll make a 10-10-10, and that's what we call a balanced fertilizer. There's absolutely no scientific basis for selling a balanced fertilizer. Plants don't use nutrients in those ratios. Uh, the whole concept of a balanced fertilizer doesn't make any sense. And if, in fact, if people understand what the NPK actually stands for, they'll realize that a 10-10-10 isn't even balanced because it's 10% nitrogen and, and something like 6% phosphorus and 4% potassium or something. Mm -hmm. So those... P and K numbers aren't actually percents of phosphorus and potassium. So the whole concept is really a marketing concept. It makes no sense. But when I started gardening, that's what everybody used. Everybody went to the store and bought a 10-10-10. Right. Brought it home, put it on their lawn, put it on their garden. That was the thing that everybody was supposed to use. And I can't come up with any logical scientific reason why that product ever existed. So what's your solution? Well, the solution really is... Uh, this this is, takes us over to one of the other myths that something like tomato fertilizer exists, right? And I'm just picking tomatoes because it's, they're very popular when you grows them. But if you go to the internet and do a search for tomato fertilizer, you'll get a whole list of different fertilizers, and every one has a different formulation. Mm. So how can they all be right? How can they all be the perfect ratios for tomatoes? And the answer is they can't be. And I think this is one of the biggest myths that we have with regard to getting nutrients into the soil. And that is that we, we think we have to feed plants in the way that we feed ourselves and that these plants need to be fed a certain ratio of nutrients. And that concept is completely false. We don't feed plants. We replace the nutrients that are missing in soil. I explain it this way. So you and I are both going to grow tomatoes. And you test your soil and you are short potassium, but you've got lots of everything else. I test my soil and I'm missing phosphorus, but I have everything else. Why would we use the same kind of fertilizer? You need to add potassium and I need to add phosphorus. So you and I need completely different fertilizers, but we're both going to grow tomatoes. The plant has very little to do with the type of nutrients we add to soil. It's all about what is in the soil and what is missing in the soil. And as gardeners, it's our job to keep adding the things that are missing. And that's really what it's all about. And, and the, all of this marketing stuff and different types of fertilizer, like you can buy orchid fertilizer and all that, those things don't actually exist except in a marketing world. And companies have convinced us that different plants need different ratios, but that doesn't make any sense. In fact, Nobody can tell you what to put in your garden to grow tomatoes because they don't know what's in your soil. Right. So I think this whole business of how we use fertilizers and what type we have and the recommendations, none of that really makes any scientific sense. And very few gardeners understand that. And, and the reason is that all the marketing material tells them the wrong thing. And most writers and blogs and so on tell them the wrong thing, too. If you go and search, well, I have a, a, you know, I'm trying to grow asters. How do I grow them? You'll find someone that tells you what kind of fertilizer to use. But they're wrong because that person has no idea what your what is in your soil. Yeah. So what's the solution? Well, the solution. There's really two two approaches I think that you can take. The one is that you get your soil tested and you find out what is missing. 
And if you know that you don't have enough potassium, you have to add some potassium some way. And there's various ways you can do that. But you at least know what you need to add. The other approach is really my approach. And I, I tend to do most gardening in as simple a way as I can. So my approach is I grow stuff. And if it grows, I know I don't have a deficiency. <laughs> right. If I, try to grow, if I try to grow five things and they don't grow, I know I have a deficiency. Then I'll get a soil test done. But I find most things grow. Mm -hmm. Now, they may not be growing at maximum productivity, but at least they grow and they make leaves and they make flowers and whatever they're supposed to do. And if that's the case, I don't have a nutrient deficiency that I have to work on. So the next step is to simply add organic matter, compost and manure, that sort of material, because those things will be adding small amounts of nutrients. And if I'm happy to be a little short on one of them, you know, I don't have quite enough potassium or my cadmium is a I don't want cadmium anyways, but my, my nickel is a little low or my nitrogen is a little low, that fertilizer will add those other nutrients in and I don't have to worry about it. Isn't it the case that the more organic matter and the more life that we get in the planting hole, the more those nutrients are going to be available for the plants? Yes. And, and that's really the long-term way to build up soil. We, most of us have soil that has too little organic matter. And a lot, either we're in a, a, an older home that, where the soil hasn't really been taken care of, or we're in a new subdivision, which is usually built on farmland that has been extensively farmed, and the mm -hmm. nutrient levels are low, and the organic levels are low. So most of us have a low level of organic matter. And by adding more, we automatically make that soil richer and provide more nutrients for plants. So that's an ongoing thing that all gardeners should do. But the interesting thing is you can have too much organic matter. So we have a lot of people now who understand this need for organic matter. And, and hey, compost is great and manure is great. And so we have people going out making gardens where most of it is compost and most of it is manure. So we're actually seeing a problem now because there's too much of this stuff in there. Yeah. The nutrient levels are getting so high that they're becoming toxic to the plants and they can't grow anything because there's too many nutrients. So there is this happy balance. You, you want to have mostly soil and a small amount of organic matter. Uh, it's interesting that you'd said you have what, less than 1% organic matter in, yeah. in your native soil. Uh, you know, the average rule of thumb that people talk about is, is 5%. Mm -hmm. And any more than 5% is, is really overkill. We don't need that in soil. And it depends on the type of soil you have. Some soils, 3% uh, is lots. 5% is great in clay-type soils, but not in other types. So you, you don't need a lot of organic matter. It's, it, we don't want something that's 50% organic matter. How do we know when we've got too much organic matter? There is no real easy answer to that. You can get a soil test done, mm -hmm. and they'll, they can measure organic matter and tell you how much you have. And if you get a soil test done for nutrients, it will show up as high nutrients. So a lot of these people are using too much. They have very high phosphate levels, mm -hmm. and that's usually the nutrient that becomes toxic to plants. The, the trick is just don't add too much. If you add an inch or two per year to your soil, you're not going to get to the point where you add too much. So an inch of compost a year is good if you're starting 
starting out with really crappy soil and you put a bit extra in the first year when you're making your gardens, that's okay. But after that, you, you only want a small amount. An inch laid on top is mulch mm-hmm. and you're not going to run into problems. The people run into problems, they're, they're digging up their gardens every year and every year they're adding like 30% organic matter in this Ooh, thing. So yeah. it gets to the point, people with raised beds, for instance, they will start with no soil. And they pretty much fill it with compost and manure and leaves and and whatever they can find. And then they wonder why they have trouble growing something after a while. So the trick is you want lots of soil in there. That soil is really important. Got it. Well, so Mike, my thought on that is that soil is the combination of all the five components. I think you're speaking, do you want to add dirt, right? Dirt is the broken down rock. Right, yes. The other thing that a lot of people don't realize is that one of those components in there, and, and you had mentioned it before, is, is air. Uh-huh. And good soil is about 25% air. And the first time I seen that number, I was just shocked that, you know, I'm walking on this stuff and it's pretty solid and, and yet it's supposed to be 25% air. That doesn't make a lot of sense to us. But a good, healthy soil is 25% air, 25% water. And those numbers move up and down depending on when it rained last. So if yep. we get a rainstorm, you know, it's 70% water. And then and then that comes down. But there's always lots of air in that soil. And that's critical because plant roots actually breathe oxygen. Okay? So the leaves take in CO2. And we most of your listeners will know about photosynthesis and so on. But in the roots, they're actually breathing in air just like humans and animals do. And if they can't get any oxygen from the air that's in the soil, the roots don't grow very well. And so that oxygen part is is really important. Yeah. So so a quarter of your soil is air. Everything that lives in there breathes. So all the microbes, all the little small animals running around, the plant roots, everything has to breathe and they all breathe oxygen and give out CO2. And that's why most plants won't grow in a boggy area. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only plants that grow there are ones that have specialized roots that can oh, take very right. low oxygen levels. So how can, I've got one of your questions is, how can you identify soil deficiencies by looking at leaves? Tell me about that. So I've seen a lot of memes going around, you know, you see a little uh, a couple different leaves and some will be yellow and some will be yellow with green veins and then some brown spots and red leaves and so on and then they give you like a dozen of these and they say okay well this one is a nitrogen deficiency this one's phosphate deficiency this one's a calcium deficiency and so on and none of those memes are right okay you cannot identify a nutrient deficiency by looking at a leaf Oh, okay. Now, if you have a defic- if you have a deficiency and you know what it is, you you can sort of look for the symptoms. But to give you a little example, one of the common ones is a phosphate deficiency, and when phosphate goes low, you get darker green leaves, and sometimes they go reddish in color. And so this meme might say, okay, if you have red leaves, you have phosphorus deficiency. But red leaves are also caused by cold temperatures. Mm. High light conditions, Mm -hmm. certain types of pests, a lack of water, and a nitrogen deficiency. So if there isn't enough nitrogen for the plant, it can't absorb the phosphate. So the plant will go red because it's not getting phosphate. But that doesn't mean that the soil is deficient. It means that it doesn't have enough nitrogen to suck up the phosphate, right? Mm -hmm. So it's actually a nitrogen deficiency. And so if you go and add a whole bunch of phosphate to your soil, you won't cure the problem because it was never about phosphate. It was a nitrogen problem. 
So you cannot identify soil problems by looking at leaves. Now, it might kind of point you in the right direction sometimes, uh, but in general, you, you just can't do that. The, if you want to know about a deficiency, you have to do a soil test. So really, this is a lot of experimenting. Mm -hmm. And if you're running into significant problems, then go do your soil test. That's my general suggestion for people. I, if I was moving into a new area and wanted to get a feel for it, go get a soil test done. In, in North America, at least, they're not very expensive. You'll get the results and you'll have an idea where you are. But the alternative is, is just grow stuff and mm -hmm. see how it does. Yeah, just jump and, in. You know, that, to me, that, that's, that has been my approach my whole life. I have done a soil test about three years ago, but I did it mostly so I could write about it, not because I really needed the soil test. Mm -hmm. I was just curious what it would tell me. So, so my, yeah, my approach is just grow stuff and see how it does. There you go. So tell me about your books. Well, my first book was Building Natural Ponds. And what I wanted to do was put a pond quite a distance from the house where there wasn't any electricity and I wanted it natural. So I did the internet search and looked everywhere and everybody told me the same thing that such a pond will not work <laughs> and mean, based you, on my you mean nature won't work right nature won't work because there's this plastic liner this rubber liner mm -hmm. and that made no sense to me and i i mean i have a pretty good understanding of the biology and chemistry that's happening in a pond i thought that okay I think it will work. So I built one, waited three years, and it, it works really well. I have no algae problems. I don't do anything to the pond. I top it up once a year because I don't get quite enough rainfall to keep it topped up. There's no pump. There's no electricity. I don't use any chemicals. It, it's just a real natural pond, except I, I dug the hole and I did put a liner in because it's in a sandy area and the water would just run away there. Mm -hmm. And a few years later, I was writing about it. And then a publisher came to me and asked me to write a book. And it's, it's really the only book on the market that I know of for building natural ponds. And we actually have a Facebook group called Building Natural Ponds. And we have quite a large group now of people all over the world who are, who are doing this. You know, very simple, no electricity. Mm -hmm. Everyone has all kinds of insects and animals that, that use the ponds. The birds come, you know, the raccoons come at night for a drink. Dragonflies and frogs all over the place. And virtually zero maintenance. But there are a few things to make it work. And, and the secret to it is actually plants. The plants are doing yes. all my work for me and cleaning the water, just like in nature. Yeah, right? you think? Yeah, nature works sometimes, right? And we, we tend to forget that. We want, we want to be better than nature a lot of the time. And nature usually knows what she's doing. Yeah, you think? Yeah. And, and then uh, with my science background, I, I, I'm, I tend to be kind of analytical. So I like to look at these sort of things like, you know, do, can you tell a deficiency by looking at leaves. So I'll see that on the internet and I ask myself, I wonder if that's really true. Does, does that really work? And then I'll go and I'll research that. And many times I'll go back to original scientific studies and see what they tell me and dig out the facts. And then I write about them on my blog called Garden Myths. And then about three years ago, I, I published a book called Garden Myths. And I actually find that a lot of the things that we think we know about gardening are actually false. There, there's so many things on a daily basis that are wrong. And there are things I believe my whole life about gardening that I find out, hey, that, that doesn't make any sense. Right. And so that's part of 
what I do is I, I try to find the truth about things and then write about them. For instance, companion planting, you know, very hot topic. Like everybody wants to put plants together and, and, you know, plant A likes plant B and they grow better together. Well, is that really true? I mean, what, what does the science say about companion planting? And it's actually pretty complex. But the bottom line is that most of the examples you'll read about don't actually work, or at least there's no scientific basis for it. Mm -hmm. Most of this hasn't really been studied, so we, right. we can't say it doesn't work, but there's no evidence that it does work either. Okay. Wow. Now, there are some cases where it does work, and most of those are agricultural based. For instance, I don't know if you guys suffer from uh, nematodes, root rot nematodes. Yeah, with some. But they're a big problem in places like Florida and, and the Carolinas, I think, have a lot of problem with them on things like carrots and beets and so on. And so one of the solutions there is, is grow some marigolds with your carrots and you won't get root knot nematodes. Well, it turns out that that kind of works, but you have to grow the marigolds first and immediately follow it by a carrot crop. Oh, interesting. The same the same. Same season. You can't grow them side by side. They have to be grown in essentially the same hole. Well, that doesn't work in most of North America because right. our growing season is too short. Right. So, yes, that does work. You have to use the right kind of marigolds and you have to plant them exactly the right way. So most of the advice on the Internet of putting marigolds around the outside of your garden and so on won't have any effect on on the, the nematodes. Wow, cool. Well, thank you so much for writing about all that. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that failure, and what you might have learned from it. Well, there's lots of plants that have died under my care, but we all do that. Right. But I, I thought I'd pick something that wasn't garden-related, and, and I guess when I was very, very young, my worst subject was English. Hmm. I couldn't spell. I couldn't write. I, my grammar was terrible, and, and it was just terrible. I, I was a good math and science student. I was a terrible English student. And now I write books, and I write for a living, which is kind of an interesting progression. Isn't that curious? And I guess the secret is you just have to keep after it and just keep practicing. And I find most things that I can't do and don't know how to do, if I actually put my mind to it and practice it, put some time into it, but I can learn how to do it. Yeah. So that's what I've done with English. I'm still no English star. But you're so a English writer. Is still bad, but it's a lot better than it was when I was younger. There you go. Well, interestingly enough, I flunked speech class in high school because I was so afraid to get up in front and talk to people. Now I regularly talk to thousands of people every year, you know, about gardening. And so it's just, it's a learned trait. Yeah. It takes practice. Anybody can do it. So what do you consider your biggest success? I had to think about that one. Uh, probably my two kids. So I have a, a son and daughter, and they're both fairly successful and happy. Uh, they're well-adjusted, and we have a great relationship. We're friends, and I can talk to them about pretty much anything, and we get along well. And, and that includes my wife. Nice. The four of us get along really well. Yeah. And I, I guess if I looked at my life, that was probably my biggest accomplishment. Nice. And what drives you? I like to learn things and I like to teach other people. So I've always enjoyed running classes and uh, doing seminars. And a lot of my writing is available free online. And, and I enjoy having 
helping other people learn, but I like learning myself. And I, th- I see that as sort of a cyclical problem, right? Right. I learn things, I pass it on. And as I'm passing it on, I learn things from other people and people mm-hmm. keep asking me questions and I don't know the answers. So I go off and learn them and then, then I know them and I can pass them on. But I do enjoy learning things. Nice. Yeah, I consider myself a lifelong learner. Yeah. For sure. So if you could recommend one book for our listeners, what would it be and why? Well, this is getting to be an old book, but it's still a very good book and still available. And it's called Weedless Gardening by Lee Reich. And he's kind of a hero of mine. He believes about gardening very similar to I do. Keep everything simple. He writes about gardening. He has a newsletter that goes out and a blog post, I think on gardening he's written several books and he's all about keeping it simple and so weedless gardening is a book that shows you you know how to do things in the garden so you have less work and most of his focus is on growing fruits and vegetables nice yeah that looks like an interesting book weedless gardening by lee reich r-e-i-c-h awesome and if you had one final piece of advice for our listeners what would it be this one Maybe unusual, but we have the internet, which is so powerful, and yet I see the internet spoiling a lot of information for a lot of people. And so the one skill that people haven't learned yet is how to get on the internet and find the, the truthful information and what to ignore. Right. So we talked about some of these some of these memes that are floating around. Most of those are wrong. It's a very good chance they're wrong. When you're Googling, you have to learn which sources to ignore and which sources you can believe. Don't believe headlines from newspapers and most blog posts. Many blogs are there only to get you to click on something. So if you go to a blog and it's got a lot of information all the way around the outside about you know, movie stars and and health kicks and the latest craze and whatever. Those are just clickbait sites. They write stuff to get you interested. And most of that information is not true. And that goes for gardening, but it also goes for the rest of your life too. Health issues and nutrition and, and everything that's going on in life. There's so much garbage on the internet now. And people really have to learn to filter that out so they get to the truth. Amen to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Robert. Well, it was great being here. It was fun. Cool. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? My blogs are gardenmyths.com and gardenfundamentals.com. If you do a Google search for Garden Fundamentals, you'll find also a Facebook group that people can join. And that's the easiest way to contact me. If you want to ask me some direct questions, I'm on there several times a day. And I also have a YouTube channel called Garden Fundamentals. Excellent. And that is a gardening channel, and we do all kinds of different topics. Excellent, excellent. Thank you, thank you for joining us today. And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash soil myths. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. 
If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18 and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.